Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Welcome, everyone. It's a delight to have you. Thank you for being here with us. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing, be acceptable to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're halfway through our fall sermon series on the New Testament book of 1 John, and I've entitled it Reasons to Stay because, as we've told you, there's a group from within this church to whom John writes who have left the church and left the faith, and they're also working to persuade others to leave with them also. And I've told you that time and time again because some of you are leaving right now. And maybe you don't realize it, but it's happening. You're, you're listening to the world and you're, you're drifting in your beliefs and your behavior. And statistically, it's happening. We know this as well. The Pew Research Center came out with a new survey just last week, but it really doesn't say much that's very new. Right now, 64% of Americans claim to be Christians, while all other religions make up 6%. But the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation, they make up 30%, close to a third of our culture. And by 2070, and I know some of you are thinking, Tim, by then I'll be long dead. I'll be 95, so I understand. But by 2070, The present trends continue. Pew estimates that Christians will make up as much as half. So from 64 to 50% or as little as one third of the population. And depending upon how the Christian percentage drops, the nuns could be as much as half of the population and maybe even the majority of the population by then. And who knows if this will happen? And my greater concern is not if this will happen, but why it's happening now. On Monday, I was in a meeting with a group of pastors, and the speaker was a good friend of mine from a number of years ago, a man named Doug Swaggerty, and he told the story of being worn down and worn out spiritually a number of years ago when he was a pastor in a local congregation, and his favorite time of the week was when he would go and play in this adult baseball game on Saturdays. He, he would go and he would play college. He played college baseball and all of the, the guys in the league played college baseball. Some of them played professionally, but they were old then. They're about my age, mid-40s, so it was bad baseball. But all of the girlfriends and the wives would go and watch, probably just to help them off the field after they hurt themselves. But but they would go, and he told his wife, you don't have to come and watch this. This is terrible. 
But she said, I want to come. And he said, why do you want to come and watch this? And she said, it's because that's the only time in the week that I get to see you smile and hear you laugh. You're so worn out. And I can relate. At times throughout my life in ministry, Alyssa had said similar things to me. And some of you can relate also right now. You're worn down. You're worn out spiritually. You're thinned out in your soul. And there's very little joy for you in being a Christian. And you're, you're wondering, you're, you're listening, you're thinking and considering about leaving and what that would mean. And so John offers, especially to you this morning, another reason to stay. And this week in chapter three and chapter four, his main reason to remain a Christian is love. The uniquely distinct love of Christianity. And so what is it? And what does it have to do with us staying in the faith? So three points this morning, the necessity, the alternative, and the cost. First of all, the necessity of love. The imperative of this passage is quite obvious. It's the very beginning of the passage and the end of the passage as well. In verse 11, John writes, this message is the one that you've heard from the beginning, that we as Christians should love one another. Later on in chapter 4, verse 11, he says we ought to love one another. So this is the evident necessity. But To know why it's an evident necessity, we also have to know what it is. And I imagine that for many of us, when we think about love, we think of it, first of all, in emotional terms, because that's our, the conceptual framework that we constantly encounter in our culture today, because we live in a, in a therapeutic and sentimental age, one in which feelings and our emotions dominate everything, dominate our sense of self and how we understand ourselves or even our ethics. How we feel about something in our culture today is what determines whether or not we think it's true and good and right. Or, or even our work. Whether our work is good, it, it's really a question of how we feel about it or our relationships or decision-making. In everything, how we feel reigns supreme. This is one of the main premises of the book that has been my dialogue partner throughout this sermon series, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. I know you've heard it. You've heard it dozens of times at this point. But he borrows this premise from the work of a late University of Pennsylvania sociologist, Philip Reef. And Philip taught that our culture, for us, culture was once something that drew us out of ourselves. And, and it drew us beyond ourselves. And historically, we understood that it was in communal activities. What we learned from other people, what they gave to us, was what then constituted ourself. Who we understood ourselves to be. Our identity was something given and learned. It wasn't something discovered or something self-created. And Reef's main work was entitled The Triumph of the Therapeutic which he wrote in 1966. And according to Truman and so many others, it was prophetic because he saw years and years ago, decades ago, what's come to full bloom now, which is that psychological categories have become the dominant factor in how we understand ourselves and how we understand and and look at other people and, and understand what is true and even what we believe things like love is. So case in point, an illustration from popular culture. In 1984, Tina Turner told us what love is. Do you remember the song? Do you remember? What's love got to do with it? It's a song about a broken heart because the singer hasn't been able to keep her sexual relationship separate from her emotions. She's arguing with herself throughout there that, that sex is just a physical act. It's something trivial. It's something not that important, but she knows that it's far more than that. So it's a song of lament. And how does she describe love in that song? Do you remember? Secondhand emotion. It's all it is. Secondhand emotion. It's something she feels about this man that she slept with. That love is how he makes her feel. 
And that is love in the modern world. In 1966, 1984, and even now, it's primarily an emotion, but not so for John. Notice what he sets love in contrast to. In verse 11, he says that we should love one another. Then in verse 12, he says that we should not be like Cain, who did what? Murdered his brother. And so love is set in contrast to murder, which is an action. Murder is an outward act. It's not an internal feeling. Now, now don't create some sort of false dichotomy in your mind where, where love as an emotion and love as an action are completely separate. They're not entirely separate. And in fact, John connects the two in verse 17 when he says, if there's a Christian, a brother who sees someone else, another Christian who is in need, he has the world's goods, means he's wealthy, and this other person is in need physically, financially, and he doesn't meet that need, he closes his heart to this person. And so there's a connection between love as an emotion and love as an action, but still in verse 17, it's especially an action. It's something that's done in the outward world towards someone else. In verse 18, he says it's a deed, and he connects deeds with truth because love is only truly fully love as an action, not as an emotion. It is a way of living, especially for us as Christians. It's a necessity for us because it's the singular way of living for us. It's the primary family likeness, in other words. My oldest son looks a whole lot like me. Y'all know him, Jake. He, he looks a lot like me. We're about the same height, about the same weight. We sound alike. Sometimes when he's speaking in the home or, or in the home and he calls out, Alyssa can't tell if it's me or if it's him. And even some of you have tapped him on the shoulder while he's here at church thinking that he is me and for some reason not wearing a robe and you're wondering why I'm not preaching. And so there's a family likeness between him and me and between me and all my boys. There's a family likeness right now that I look out and I see all across here. And did you notice that this passage revolves around the theme of family? The word brother is the main word used seven different times in this passage. It's used in every verse from verse 12 all the way through verse 17. And then in verse 18, John calls them little children. And he's not talking about them in their age in relationship to him because he's an old man. He's talking about them in their spiritual relationship to God. Two weeks ago, I preached and I preached upon what it means to be born again spiritually. And I told you that regardless of what baggage that label may carry for you, it is Christianity. Born again Christianity is not a type of Christianity. It is Christianity. Christianity stands or falls on the supernatural intervention by God described in all sorts of places throughout the Bible. Like in John 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And what does Jesus tell him? You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. God has to intervene in your life and place a new spiritual life within you so that you might really live. And also Ezekiel 37, which has this, this unsettling vision from this, of this prophet where he sees this field full of bones. And there's bones of dead soldiers who've been slaughtered. And all of a sudden, these bones, which are whitewashed by the sun, they've been sitting there so long, they're white and brittle. All of a sudden, flesh starts coming over these bones and new muscles and new skin. And the new breath is breathed into them. Peter 2, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he describes being born again as being partakers of the divine nature. So not just some life gets placed into our very souls, but God's very life. And it makes us live in ways that we couldn't live before. And then John takes all these new ways of living and he sums it all up with one word, which is the word love. It's the family likeness, more so than anything else. So back in chapter three, verse nine, he speaks about being born of God and four, seven, he does it as well because it's a necessity. We could even say it's an inevitability because John's logic is those who've been born of God, they're children of God. 
And if they're children of God, then they're going to resemble the one who has birthed them. And if you don't resemble him, maybe you're not in the family. That's his theological logic. And so before we go on, we have to ask ourselves, do we know this love? Do we know it? Do do you see the family likeness in you? Do others see the family likeness in you? Or do they see the alternative? Point two, the alternative of love and to love, according to John. I mentioned it just a minute ago. The alternative to love here is murder. In chapter three, verse 12, John writes, we Christians who have been born of God, and, and listen to the language, born of God should not be like Cain, who was what? Of the evil one. It's the same language, born of God or of the evil one, and he murdered his brother. And so maybe you see the parallel that's being set up here. Cain, of the evil one, that's his birth and his belonging, and predicated on his birth and his belonging, he murdered his brother, which is said in contrast to Christians who have been born of God, that's their birth and their belonging, and predicated on their birth and their belonging, they love one another, they love their brothers and their sisters. And so there's one family whose likeness is murder, and there's one family whose likeness is love. Two families, two likenesses, murder or love, and that's it. That's it for John. It is a very stark analysis of the human race and the human condition, and I imagine quite untenable for some of you, even if you're a Christian. It's certainly untenable for that one-third of our society which describe themselves as you know, the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation. And some of them probably, and I'm sure some of you with them are thinking, okay, now come on, Tim, are you, are you really going to, to tell us that this is the way that we're to divide the entire human race? This is what John does. He divides the entire human race between two spiritual families, that of God and that of Satan. And that is what he does. And he's just following the scriptures. He's following Genesis, our Old Testament reading. Genesis 3, 15, because two families are mentioned. Do you notice that? The offspring of Eve, the offspring of the serpent, and there's enmity between them, entrenched hatred, and Cain proves himself to belong to the latter through murder. And I know you're probably thinking it's so archaic. It's so simplistic, superstitious even. We're actually gonna try and believe that evil spirits influence people. We're too sophisticated for that. We have science. We have, we have rational minds where we're able to think out and to reason intelligently and figure out the way in which the world is and what makes sense to us and how to be happy in this world. And there's simply no evidence for this. There's no way to prove evil spirits were Satan. But we can prove other things. We can prove biology. We can prove sociology. And that's really what makes us who we are. Biology, our chemical makeups, and the socialization process that humans go through and have always gone through, that's what makes us who we are. There's not, there's not some spiritual family that's determinative for us. And you can believe that, and you can argue that, but when you do, know you're not doing it alone. You're thinking and you're arguing in line with the tradition. And it's the Enlightenment, rationalist, individualist, therapeutic tradition. And you're betting your life on that tradition in the very same way that I'm betting my life on the Christian tradition. And let me just ask you, how is that tradition doing? Is it working? What's it producing? And is what it's producing good? One of the things that the modern secular world is producing to degrees previously unimaginable is pornography. Carl Truman in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, that's what he ends his book with, speaking about pornography. 
One of the memorable sentences is this. The pornification of culture inevitably involves the trivialization of sex. You should put it on a bumper sticker. It's true. The pornification of culture inevitably involves the trivialization of sex. And I think the reverse is also true. The trivialization of sex inevitably involves the pornification of culture. And somehow we've done both. Somehow we've both trivialized sex and then we've elevated it also to something that it was never intended to be and could never be. Out of both sides of our mouths, we talk like this. We say, oh, it's just sex. Just like Tina Turner, it's just a physical experience that all people need. It's not that big of a deal. It's just sex. And then we also, at the very same time, say that it is the source of all happiness. As Truman argues throughout this book, an individual expressing his or her sexuality has become the meaning and the goal of life in the modern world. Now, how could both be true? Sex is something just incredibly trivial or it's the meaning and goal of life. Makes no sense, but that's what we say. And connected to both the trivialization of sex and the elevation of it is the porn industry, which is increasingly socially acceptable in our culture. We, we, we accept it. We expect it. Even though it's been scientifically and academically proven that pornography at its core promotes a view of sexuality that is detrimental and violent against women. 2018, for example, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation released a report and its subtitle says it all. How pornography fuels child sexual abuse, compulsive sexual behavior, violence against women, commercial sexual exploitation, and more. One of the lines from it says, what is now described as mainstream pornography, because now we have mainstream pornography. Now there's some forms of pornography that are acceptable. What's now described as mainstream or acceptable pornography has come to coalesce around a homogenous script involving violence and female degradation. And we accepted it. And you know who the most outspoken opponents of the pornography industry are traditionally? Not Christians, I wish. You know who? Feminists, like Catherine McKinnon, who says this. She says, in pornography, women are to be violated and taken. Men violate and take them, either on screen or by camera or pen on behalf of the viewer. If pornography has not become sex to and from the male point of view, it's hard to explain why the pornography industry makes a known $10 billion a year selling it as sex mostly to men. And what's that description of pornography sound like to you? What it sounds like to me is murder. Taking someone's life for your own pleasure. Whatever that form of life might be. It's their sexual life or their actual life or their emotional life or their financial life or their reputation or their sense of self-worth or their physical health or their friendships or their family or their childhood. There are so many ways to murder someone and pornography does it all. And so if murder through pornography is what our modern secular world is producing, then we have to ask to what or to whom does it belong? Or in other words, let's just honestly ask what's more plausible? What's more plausible that the pornography industry is the product of a rational, science-driven, therapeutic culture in a world in which the supernatural does not exist? That's option A. Or that it's the evidence of a spiritual family likeness that John talks about here, that left to ourselves and apart from God and his grace and his love and his spiritual intervention in our souls, we're all Cain. We're all Cain, individually and collectively. And what we will eventually do is murder somehow through gossip, 
or slander or greed or bullying with our words or with our physical strength or somehow in our hearts, we'll just we'll think dark thoughts about people and dwell upon those who have wronged us and just think at some point, I'm going to be able to say this, I'm going to be able to do this and, and dwell upon the way in which we would get them back if we just have opportunity or courage to do so. And so what's more plausible to explain what we are like, the supernatural answer according to John or the non-supernatural? Do you really think that biology and sociology alone has made us what we are, as messed up as we are, as messed up as our world is with us? Or maybe, just maybe, there is an evil one to whom we can belong. Which explanation are you willing and ready to bet your life on? Because you can bet your life on Jesus and you can belong to him. It's possible, it's being offered to you, but you have to know that there is a cost. So third point, cost of love. There are at least three costs of love here in our passage. And the first and foundational one is in verse 16, where John says, by this we know love. Conceptually, we know what it is. And not just conceptually with our minds, but we also know it in our souls. We know it and what it is and what it's like as a power and what it does to us. We know it by what? By Jesus having laid down his life for us. That's how we know what love is. And there's a picture that I can't get out of my mind. I saw it this summer. I can't forget it. It's of an artistic swimmer. You know what an artistic swimmer is? It's what used to be called a synchronized swimmer, but they changed the name several years ago in 2017 to the dismay of most of the folks that compete in the sport because they fear that people will be even less likely to believe that what they do is a sport and they're right. But it doesn't take away the power of the image because it's truly arresting. It's of this woman named Anita Alvarez. She's an American and she was doing her solo routine in Budapest this summer. And towards the end of it, she passed out. Artistic swimmers have to hold their breath for over a minute multiple times. In a, in a four, I know a lot about artistic swimming now. In just, um, in just in a four-minute routine, they have to hold their breath for over two minutes, and they're, they're twisting around and moving all throughout the, the time underwater. It sounds terrible, but it's actually really dangerous. And she passed out, and she, she went limp and quickly sank all the way to the bottom of the pool. And there's pictures of this. And then very quickly, immediately, Andrea Fuentes, her coach, dove in, swam all the way to the bottom, grabbed her limp body, and swam all the way to the surface with her. So go look the picture up. It's amazing. They're powerful images. Someone as good as dead being brought to life and rescued out of a place of death where there's no breath and brought into a place of light and life and breath. And as I saw it, I thought, it's like Jesus. It's just like Jesus. If only Andrea Fuentes had then sunk back down to the bottom and drowned in Anita's place, because that's like Jesus, and that's love. Jesus' own illustration for what love is is at the Last Supper, which is our gospel reading. It's his illustration of the cross before the fact where he strips himself, not just of his robe, but of everything, of his dignity, of his position, of his place of safety and honor, and he sinks as low as possible and as low as necessary to serve his disciples to wash away the dirt and the grime and the mess of the lowest parts of their body, their feet. So he gives up his life in order to give life to them. It's a prelude to the cross. It's his illustration. Because that's what his love cost him. His love for you cost him everything. In both murder and love, somebody pays. Someone always pays. 
Someone always gives. Someone always sacrifices. Someone always hurts. Someone always paid. And Christ paid for you. That is the depth and the breadth of his love for you. And it's the first and foundational cost of love that all the other costs relate to, including the second, which is in verse 13, which it says, do not be surprised that the world hates you. And we are surprised. They were surprised then, we're surprised now. And this is part of the cost of love that we as Christians have to pay, and that is rejection by the world. And it's inescapable. If you're gonna believe in and follow after Jesus and the world rejected and hated him, the world will too reject and hate you. It's simple. It's what John is saying. He's saying, don't be surprised. But we don't wanna be hated. I don't wanna be hated. And I just wonder if because we don't wanna be hated, that's why so many Christians are leaving because we're so used to being popular and powerful and comfortable and approved in our culture around us. And so we're surprised by the level of animosity and even vitriol that comes at us because of our beliefs or because of our ethics. And we get overwhelmed and we get cowered and confused by it. So we'd rather reject Christianity than be rejected for us. And John simply says, don't be surprised. Because if, you're, if you aren't surprised, you'll be less likely to leave when it happens. So don't be surprised anymore. Don't be surprised. And the third cost, which is also ours to bear, is also in verse 16, where, Jesus, where John says, Jesus laid down his life so that we ought to lay down our lives for others, for brothers, for the brothers especially. And then he mentions possessions and money. Care for the poor, in other words. Specifically Christians who are poor. And I could talk a lot more about this, but let me just say this. Financially laying down your life is the first and easiest way to love. It's the first and easiest way. In so many ways, it's the least costly. And so if you are a Christian and you're not doing that, start. But, if, but don't simply start. Don't stop there. Move on. I promise you what will happen if you start giving your money, you'll begin before too long to give of your life in other ways and lay down your life in ways that you hadn't before, sacrificing your time, which for us, let's be honest, is usually far more valuable to us than a lot of our money for most of us or our energy or abilities or our talents or our wisdom or our strength or our knowledge or your home. You'll begin to, to offer hospitality, which is love of strangers. And that will change you. I promise you, it will change you. And yes, we're here to worship God, but we're also here to be changed by him. If we're not wanting to be changed, then why are we here? And, and John says, he promises here, it will change you if you exercise love for others. He says, last verse, it'll be perfected in you. It's a word that means finished or completed. Love will grow to full form and full maturity, full expression. And if, if you just exercise it, because love is the only way, friends. It's the only way. It's the only way to be a Christian. It's the only way to remain a Christian. It is the only way to grow spiritually as a Christian. So lay down your life. Die to yourself. Give of yourself. Begin to love. And you will begin to live. It is the family likeness. It's the family likeness in you. So become what you are. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray even as I prayed at the beginning of the service, that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that he might pour out your love into our hearts, that we might more fully be that which you have rescued us to be, your very children, those who love others like you and in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.